The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Natural Bridges Media or KSQD's staff, volunteers, or underwriters. KSQD thanks Sustainable Systems Research Foundation for supporting sustainability now. SSRF provides education, research, and advocacy for regional environmental quality and sustainability-related problems and solutions. For information, visit SustainableSystemsFoundation.org. And thank you, SSRF, for supporting community radio, KSquid 90.7 FM. Hello, K-Squid listeners. It's every other Sunday again, and you're listening to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly K-Squid radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. Longtime listeners will recall my interview a year ago with Professor Matthew Liebman at the University of San Francisco, who focuses on the rights of animals, especially in legal matters. More than 50 years ago, the late Christopher Stone, then a UCLA law professor, wrote a groundbreaking law journal article called Should Trees Have Standing, in which he argued for the right of trees to be represented in courts of law when under threat from human activities. His article launched the Rights of Nature movement, which since then has taken the world by storm. There are many advocacy organizations for rights of nature, and some cities, counties, and countries have encoded such rights into their charters, law, and constitutions. But what does it mean to say that trees, rivers, and animals have rights? Does the rights of nature make any practical sense? And how can such rights be implemented and practiced? My guest today is Katie Sermo, a reporter at Inside Climate News. She's been covering international environmental law and justice issues, including the rights of nature beat for ICN since 2021, and has written extensively on the topic. Surma has a master's degree in investigative journalism from Arizona State University's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism, an LLM in International Rule of Law and Security from ASU's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and a JD from Duquesne University. Katie Surma, welcome to Sustainability Now. Thank you for having me. Um, Well, let's begin at the beginning. Prior to joining Inside Climate News, you specialize in commercial law, as I understand it. How did you get from the practice of commercial law to environmental journalism? Why did you make that pivot? Yeah, I get asked this question often. I'm sure. (laughs) And I wish I had a very snappy response, but the real answer is that it was a very long um, process. I came out of law school in the aftermath of the financial crisis and uh-huh. you know went to work for a firm and found myself a number of years later questioning what I was doing how I ended up here and deciding to go back and get another law degree that was focused on international law and democracy and human rights and was going to make that pivot when I was 
offered a fellowship to study uh, investigative journalism. And, uh, you know, a few few months later, here I am at, at Inside Climate News and, and really love the work that I'm doing now. I mean, tell me, tell me a little bit about the fellowship. Uh, did you apply for it or was it when you say it was offered to you? Yeah. So uh, I did not apply. Um, I was finishing up my coursework for that other law degree. Uh, It's called an LLM. And the um, Arizona's uh, School of Journalism was rolling out this new master's program and they were looking for mid-career people. Uh And they approached me about it. And I, you know, if I could have done my academics all, all over again, I would have probably gone into journalism. So it was sort of like this divine <laughs> intervention for me. And um, I just, I made the jump. Yeah, but my observation, and this is completely off the cuff, is that those who major in journalism have a much more difficult time of getting into journalism. Um, that, that, you know, the experience is probably really, really important. Maybe you can describe for our listeners what Inside Climate News is and, you know, what does it do and who is it for? Sure. Yeah. So Inside Climate News, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom. We are digitally based. So we have our our website, insideclimatenews.org. But we also partner with many other organizations. So you'll see our work um, on NBC or ABC or NPR stations, um, different partners. We give our work away for free. Mm-hmm. We also like to tell people we've won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, yeah. okay. We are the ones who broke Exxon new, um, you know, investigating that uh, Exxon scientist knew the science of climate change a long time ago and obfuscated that, you know, through millions of dollars at confusing the public about the science. Um, And I have about 25 colleagues. We cover the whole gamut around climate change, the environment and energy. Um, And, you know, I'm biased, but I think my colleagues are some of the best in the business at, at what we do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I remember years and years ago, there were, I think commercial newsletters like inside, you know, the nuclear industry and things like that. Um, You know, and that was, that was sort of, much more not gossipy but but uh you know who has been saying things to whom and and the like anyway um so you know coverage of climate change has proliferated over the last couple of decades i mean if you you know if you do a search uh a google search you get millions of hits so what do you think icn's comparative advantage is in what is a really crowded publishing niche yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It coverage has exploded around climate change, and that's great. I mean, we we are not competing with other organizations in that way, but we definitely bring, you know, an extra bit of light to our coverage. My colleagues are all um, really experienced on the beats that they're on. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been doing this for <clears throat> a long time before reporting on this stuff was cool or mainstreamed. So our stories tend to have just that extra context that you, know, you walk away feeling like you know something a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. But also, um, I would say, because we're a nonprofit, we are not held to the 
you know, you have to produce stories every day for clicks or, or whatever. We, we are not driven by that. We're very mission driven. We have a public interest and we can take the time to really report out stories. Like for instance, I've had a story that's been in the works for over a year. Um, you know, I got sent to, to Ecuador for a month <laughs> to, to do work on it. So we have those opportunities. Um, and that I think sets us apart. Yeah, you know, that's pretty remarkable that, um, and then, I mean, it's investigative journalism, right? Basically, um, or it's a form of, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a lot of what we do has an investigative edge to it. Yeah, yeah. So let's turn to the rights of nature, since that's the ostensible topic of, of our inter, you know, of our show. So by my count, about a quarter of your articles for ICN have addressed rights of nature law and legal action. So how would you define the rights of nature? Are, and are there any legal definitions? I'm also assuming you keep up with uh, some of the law journal stuff, um, but you can disabuse me of that if it's, <laughs> if you want to. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so it, it can sound like a strange idea to folks who've never heard of this phrase before, but I usually like to explain it by saying, you know, there's this philosophical side to it and there's a legal side to it. And the legal side is grounded in the philosophy. So the, the philosophy really is that nature is not an object. It's not a thing like a pen or your computer. It is, uh, you know, a web of life of living beings that has intrinsic value and deserves to exist in its own right. And so the the legal part aims to enact, you know, legislation or get judicial decisions that recognize that nature has inherent rights. Mm -hmm. And the legal definitions vary depending on who's enacting the legislation, but they tend to be, the rights tend to be tailored to the entity that is at issue. So if um, a court is recognizing the rights of a river, it may say the river has the right to flow or to have clean water. Um, generally, the rights sort of emanate around something to the effect of the right to restore itself and the right to natural cycles, the right mm -hmm. to exist, mm -hmm. those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Do rivers have rights, the right to flood? So that's actually contested. That was, yeah. uh, it came up in cases in India um, where, you know, a question was like, okay, well, if a river floods, can we sue it for damages? And advocates say, you know, it doesn't work that way. It's not, you know, nature has rights, but nature doesn't owe us duties. It's not a human being. It can't make decisions about, about those things. So that sort of answered the question on that. But I think that's where a lot of people's minds go when they start thinking about this. Well, you know, I mean, it's when you talk about the rights of animals, right? It's do, do mosquitoes have rights? It's that kind of that kind of question, right? Which which ultimately relies on some degree of utilitarianism, of some degree of use value. Um, yes, yes. And so you're hitting on, I think, what is a big misconception about the movement? Okay. You know, people will say, okay, so if a mosquito then has rights, like we we can't kill the mosquito, which sounds insane. Um, you know, this is more about integrity of ecosystems to mm -hmm. continue 
to regenerate, right? In the cultures that this idea comes from, right? A lot of indigenous cultures or traditional cultures, they are hunters, they're fishermen, right? They they use nature as much as anyone. I mean, I guess that's sort of a false equivalency. <laughs> I don't mean it that way, but they, you know, they they kill animals. Um, but they live in such a way that nature can regenerate. It, it, there's a sustainableness to what they do. So um, saying nature has rights does not mean you can't kill a mosquito. <laughs> um, no, I, I realize that's an extreme example. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I referenced this in the introduction, but um, I had a, a guest on last year who had been involved. No, and we talked about court cases involving elephants and horses, right? Yeah. And of course, they're charismatic and and uh and and individuals i mean that's of course the other other issue right is that you're talking about ecosystems and yet our legal system is premised on the idea of individuals and not of systems um and uh i'm lecturing you now and i don't want to do that but no i this is it's a great conversation please please go well okay so you know, rights of nature are, are modeled on the concept and practice of human rights. Okay, I mean, I think that's that's pretty clear. Um, but human rights can be understood, at least from my perspective, as a form of property in the individual self, and basically our society's mechanism for protecting the individual from encroachment by governments and businesses. All right, so uh, that's a mouthful, but you know, that's sort of the, the premise. But for the most part, or for in large part, nature uh, is treated instrumentally and as a form of state or private property, right? So so property rears its, its head, whether it's ugly or not, in the discussion. So how is this tension resolved by rights of nature, law, and practice? Yeah, and so if I'm understanding the question correctly, I mean, t tell me if I'm not being responsive, but a lot of my sources, people I talk to in this movement say that the rights of nature is sort of a bridge between these two different worlds. It's, you know, the human rights, you're right, it, it comes from a lot of you know Western ideas, individual rights, um, and you know, the, the rights of nature comes from a completely different, you know, set of cultures. And it does not, those cultures do not see the natural world as things or objects, um, property. Uh, but it, it, um, it, it's not incompatible. The two worlds aren't incompatible and the rights of nature movement seems to show that. Um, it, when I, when I think about these two sort of parallel tracks, I I always like to go over, um, you know, the way human rights developed, right? It was born out of one of the worst atrocities the humankind has ever known, the Holocaust. And, you know, I think it was 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was right. enshrined, mm -hmm. and we had this whole body of, of human rights law explode out of that. And then in the 1970s, you know, we had the environmental movement, and the laws that came out of that were very like regulatory. It, it regulates the pace and the amount of pollution. 
Um, and we know that, you know, conventional laws are one rung on the ladder and, you know, the protection of rights is a much higher protection. And so what the rights of nature movement is doing is saying, you know, we're making a moral argument that nature also deserves this higher level of protection because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a moral, it's a philosoph philosophical argument very much in the same way that, you know, those arguments underpinned the creation of human rights laws. Um, I don't know if I'm getting off base or if that's. No, no. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a good point, but, but, you know, the way that, that one can think about it is um, the right to one's labor, right? That's, that's, uh, again, I, I think that's in the convention, Um but of course, that involves then the selling or the commodification of of work, right, and and mm -hmm. pay. So I mean, in a sense, it's a it's a right of property in the self. Mm -hmm. you know, it's a protection against the depredations of the market. And mm -hmm. I mean, we see this argument now in terms of intellectual property rights and the internet, right? Do we as internet users own our data? Yeah. Right. The data that we produce even though we have no way of capturing that data, mm. right? But we would say we have a right to, that's, you know, I don't know if that's a human right, but we certainly have, the claim is we have a right right to data. So, um, and the fact is that a lot of, of, the, of, of things in nature, I'm using the term things, are owned either privately or by states. Yeah. Right? And so once you start to, recognize rights of nature you're also infringing on this foundational principle of liberal society which is the right to property and the protection of property right mm -hmm. and that's really what i'm what i'm trying to get at is that we live in this utilitarian society right the legal system uh there are ethical elements to it but the legal system is largely premised really on property um, and, and, you know, and protection against external issues. I'm just trying to trouble this because, you know, we've seen these court cases and I want to get to those in a, in a couple of minutes. Um, and, you know, the basis for court decisions, you know, gets, gets kind of convoluted. And this leads then Katie, again, you know, I apologize if I'm, if I'm lecturing. Uh, and as you've mentioned, right, the, the other source of rights of nature is indigenous worldviews, right? The cultural notion that amongst indigenous societies, there's no distinction between humans and nature in terms of their place in the world, right? In terms of their relationships. So if we're going to fully internalize this idea of rights of nature, we also have to change our understandings, our worldviews, our you know understandings of our place, place in the world. Do you have any ideas about how we could do that? So this is not just legal, right? This is also cognitive, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So what my reporting has found, I mean, the first thing I should say is, I mean, there's a lot of diversity within this movement, but also within different indigenous communities. Um, 
you know, a lot of a lot of differences and uniqueness um, among them. But we can draw out some commonalities. And, you know, beyond the sort of legal aspect of this, um, there seems to be broad agreement among people that uh, a couple things can can or should be done to help progress this idea that, you know, we are interconnected with nature as a source of mind likes to say human beings are one one leaf on a tree of life. Mm. Um, and uh, number one is empowering indigenous and traditional communities, right. um, empowering them to have sovereignty over themselves and their territories and not to to get back into property rights, but getting them secure land title. So they have legal security over their territories um, is number one. Um, Empowering their voices um, so that they are heard from directly and not through intermediaries. Um, And also getting them a seat at the table in the rooms where decisions are made. You know, we exist in a world that is based on state, nation state sovereignty. And First Nations, um, Indigenous communities are are relegated to the sidelines. And so, you know, pushing for these you know, advocates are pushing for more Indigenous voices at these decision tables um, is a place to start. Mm-hmm. But my, my question has more to do with how do we in the in the North, the global North, right, who live in this liberal society, essentially, how do we begin to internalize this this different Weltanschauung, if I can use that term, right? Which which includes our relationships, our relations with nature. Mm-hmm. And I know, I mean, you know, I'm kind of fishing here. Not not that I necessarily you've thought about it. I'm sure you have. But do you do you know? Have you run into any any ideas about how we we move in that direction? Yeah, well, I mean, I should say my reporting is has been focused on, you know, communities that this is their culture and also on the legal aspect. So, you know, not so much advocacy outside of that. Um, So, I mean, I have a hard time answering that question besides just, you know, opining about people connecting with nature more, that sort of thing. so someone else may be better placed to answer oh. that. But for, I mean, from the, I can say that, you know, the legal side of this, people who push for these laws, they'll argue that law affects society, right? Like if if we enact a law that prohibits jaywalking, uh, eventually, you know, we we internalize that jaywalking is bad. Uh, so we can be influenced by by the law. And so that is sort of one outcome that they they say might happen if we start recognizing legally mm-hmm. uh, the rights of nature. Mm-hmm. So my, my impression is that the, the concept of rights of nature elicits a fairly positive response when people first learn about it, even though it sounds pretty radical. So So you have written that in the United States, rights of nature laws have taken root in more than 30 localities across the country 
and in Ohio, Colorado, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. So maybe you can tell us one or two stories about, you know, how this has happened and what happened. Yeah. Um, so the United States is really interesting. Um, it is the birthplace of the first rights of written rights of nature law that happened in Tamaqua, Pennsylvania, which is like a, a rural conservative town in, in Pennsylvania. And that case is sort of emblematic of a lot of the rights of nature ordinances in the U.S. because it's a community that was beset by pollution. Companies were dumping toxic coal ash in the area. There was sewage sludge. People were getting sick. Um, cancers, like rare cancers, were popping up in clusters. And so a, a woman, if I re remember her name, it was Kathy Morelli. Um, she ran for city council and she had attended this community rights workshop with um, two men who have been very active in the movement ever since. And she learned about this idea of the rights of nature um, and also about community rights. In the United States, you know, communities have very little power um, over lawmaking. So if a community wants to restrict dumping of toxic sludge, the state legislature can say, no, you can't do that. Um, and so what Kathy Morelli did was well, she ran with this idea and got the law passed. Now it's it's still in the books, I think, but it would not be enforceable because state law would preempt it. Um, I believe Pennsylvania has something to that effect. Uh, and that's the case <laughs> across most, I mean, all of the country, that's why none of these laws have, have really taken hold here. Um, for that to happen, uh, something would have to happen at the state level. So a state constitutional amendment recognizing the rights of nature, or state legislation of some sort. So basically what, what happens is there's pushback, right? There's pushback from the interests who would be affected which gets back to that notion of, you know, intr intrusion on property, rights of property, um, yeah. right? And legislatures are beholden to business interests, you know, and 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 funders, right? Uh, there is this case about the rice in Minnesota. How did that, how does that one go? Yeah, uh, the rights of Monoman, um, which is wild rice that mm -hmm. is sacred to the, um, so forgive me because I didn't look at this case closely I, to refresh my recollection. Um, okay. But it is, it's a, a law that was enacted uh, by a tribal nation and they were seeking, I believe, to apply it outside the, the territory of the tribe because it gets a little legally complicated. Um, the tribe holds treaty rights to mm -hmm. hunt, fish and gather Right. on their traditional lands, which are off the reservation. And so uh, Enbridge, which was building a pipeline, was pumping water. It was the middle of a drought, and this rice grows on water. And so what, what the tribe was saying was that, you know, this violates the rights of Monoman. They had legally recognized the, the rights of the rice. It's a sacred plant to them. And the litigation sort of bounced back and forth, but it it hasn't gone anywhere. I I, I would have to check up on it, but um, there were two other 
rights of nature enforcement actions in the United States as well. There's been three and none of them have outright won. Um, one came to a settlement that was a advantageous decision for the rights of salmon. Um, dams are being removed as a result of the lawsuit, but there was no legal recognition of the rights of nature in that case. Um, in that, I was actually going to re- refer to the, the salmon case, right? That's in, where is that? That's in? It's in uh, Washington in State. In Washington State, right? But it also has to do with with certain, I think with certain treaty rights that the Native Americans have to to fish for salmon, right? And if the salmon disappear, yeah. right? So it's it's not just for the salmon. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. That's correct. And, um, you know, it's one of the outcomes of the rights of nature movement, which tends to grab attention, um, is that hopefully it it draws people into the state of, uh, you know, it's called Indian law in the United States. And there are a lot of legal doctrines, Supreme Court cases that are still the law of the land that are based on doctrines like the doctrine of discovery, mm-hmm. which, you know, basically it was a, a issued from the Vatican that gave cover to right, right. colonizers to come and legally take the land of indigenous people who who lived here. So, you know, we still have a lot of those threads in our in our legal system. Yeah, and um, do they do they come up? I mean, I don't I don't know. Do, do, does the doctrine does the doctrine of discovery come up in cases like this? Well, it's it's certainly not talked about. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but we we have juris, it, you know, jurisprudence that has been built on the I foundation see. of those those bedrock principles. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great book about this. Um, it's called In the Courts of the Conqueror that I highly recommend. And it mm. walks through this. And, you know, interesting fact is that Pope Francis <laughs> recently rescinded the doctrine of discovery. So it was just within the last few months. And um, he has also in his encyclical, you know, recognized that nature has rights, which is fascinating um, he's been pretty outspoken on that, although I don't think his leadership on that has perme- permeated the American Catholic Church, which is much more conservative. Yeah, if as as an encyclical, I don't know that it has uh, its binding on the church, right? If it were right. a papal bull, and the doctrine of discovery was a papal bull, right? right. Dividing dividing the uh, Western Hemisphere between Spain and Portugal as I recall, um, which is why Brazil is Portuguese, speaks Portuguese, and the rest of the continent speaks Spanish. Well, um, a little history lesson there. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, that it's kind of like an onion. Law is kind of like an onion. If you drill down deeply enough, you find all kinds of fascinating and contradictory things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, go on. No, no, I, I mean... I- I could definitely go on, but I will not not take us off on a tangent. Well, we can go off on tangents. Tangents are always interesting. Um, well, so let's take a, a typical suit, okay? Let's take, um, I know there was recently, uh, there was a suit about the rights of the Colorado River. I think that was thrown out of court. 
Uh, do, are you familiar with that one? Oh, only a, it's been a while since I looked at it. Uh -huh. um, I think I mean there was like the threat that the attorney who brought it, I believe, was threatened with uh, professional, like being professionally reprimanded for bringing a, oh, a ridiculous really? suit. I'm thinking about the same one. Well, it may have been, but but my my question is, um, how does representation mm. take place, right? Because obviously the river. The river could flood the courthouse, I suppose, but um, the river doesn't speak for itself in, in uh, oral terms. So right. how does that work? So in, in jurisdictions where there is a law on the books that gives or recognizes nature's rights, um, it usually specifies who has standing to go to court on the entity's behalf or nature's behalf. And most of those laws say any citizen can come into court. Um, I should note, I mean, opponents of the rights of nature movement say this will just lead to an explosion of litigation. Um, it hasn't. Uh, it's very expensive to bring lawsuits. Right. Um, but it does open the aperture up. Um, in other places, like New Zealand, um, the rights of the Wanganui River, it's a very unique situation for the you know, in relation to the Maori people, and they are the ones who are able to, uh, I believe, stand in the place of the river, or there's like a special council set up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, who can go to court on behalf of nature? It varies by whatever the law says, but uh -huh. generally, you know, the lawmakers, they open it up to anyone who wants to come and assert the rights of nature. Um I wanted to actually, you know, get you to talk about other countries where this concept has taken deeper root. And you, you mentioned New Zealand. Is is that encoded in the Constitution or is that legislation? It's legislation. Okay. So in theory, someone could take it to their, I suppose there's higher courts, right? And and challenge it. If in Ecuador, though, it's it's in the um it's in the constitution. That's right. Can you talk about that for a bit? Absolutely. Yeah. And Ecuador is, it's the place in the world where the jurisprudence is the most advanced. So it's really interesting to look at what's happened there um, because this was sort of an unknown quantity until it's been put mm -hmm. into practice. Mm -hmm. And so in 2008, you know, Ecuador uh, enacted a new constitution. It was led by a citizen referendum. It's considered an ecological constitution because it's chock full of, you know, the rights of nature, uh, right to a healthy environment for humans, et cetera. But it, you know, the, the law was sort of up in the air until 2021 when a big case came out of the the constitutional court there called Los Cedros. And the court struck down a um, permit to mine in a protected cloud forest. Uh, a lot of people don't know what a cloud forest is. Um, it is one of the most beautiful places you will ever see. So rainforests are very low lying. Mm -hmm. uh, they tend to have the same flora and fauna, although it's extremely diverse. Um, cloud forests are uh, at much higher elevation and the forms of life change, you know, by elevation. So it's, right. it's beautiful. I highly recommend 
Ecuador is just amazing if you ever have the chance to go. So, um, so this case, um, the constitutional court said that the laws that were on the books, so the permitting laws that this mining company had to uh, comply with to get a license were insufficient to protect the rights of nature. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the big outcomes of the case was that it shifted the burden that typically applies in these situations. So normally, you know, if I want to go to court to say this mining activity, it harms the environment, I have the burden of proof to show that something wrong is happening. Um, What the court in Ecuador said was it is, you know, on the government, on the mining company, or whoever wants to engage in these ecologically harmful practices to prove that they will not do irreparable harm to an ecosystem. Uh, And that's a big deal. Um, The court also ordered the government to change those permitting laws to amp them up to that higher rung on the ladder that will protect a right versus, you know, the conventional environmental laws. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, I mean, it's, it's catalyzed a number of, of lawsuits since. Um, So the, the jurisprudence is building, but Ecuador is not, you know, this environmental legal paradise. I mean, you go uh, east into the Amazon and oil production is rampant. Um, People's rights are routinely violated, not to mention nature's rights. Um, So it's a very, you know, it's messy, but um, that's, that's the law. That's sort of you know, the reality of the circumstances, but you have these very strong court decisions and it is catalyzing uh, a lot of change. Do do the uh, communities have to, I mean, go to, do, are they the, the plaintiffs in these cases? How, how does, do they, or do they work with local yeah. lawyers or, or international organizations? And for instance, it's in this case, this Lysedra's case. Yeah, so usually it's it's local communities that are named plaintiffs, also the natural entity that will be in, so they're both they'll both be named plaintiffs. Uh-huh. And um the Ecuadorian, you know, legal community is some of the most brilliant folks in this area that are pushing this area of law. A lot of uh amicus briefs will, you know, friends of the court briefs will come in from outsiders. Mm-hmm. A lot of organizations in the U.S. will try to help educate the court or or steer the court. Um, but yeah, I mean, highly have, have, have only great things to say about the, the legal community in Ecuador. A lot mm-hmm. of really bright people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what else is going on around the world in these terms in other countries? Yeah, we're seeing an explosion of things happening. Yeah. Uh, Panama recently enacted a, a national law recognizing the rights of nature. It has subsequently separately recognized the rights of sea turtles. Um, Aruba is on the cusp of amending its constitution to recognize the rights of nature. Um, I mean, there's there's dozens of these laws. Uh, something else that's interesting to watch is 
um, sort of the central hub organization in the world for the rights of nature is called the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature or GARN. Mm -hmm. and GARN has an arm that does um, sort of citizens tribunals where mm. they will gather a group of experts, scientists, lawyers, rights activists, and they'll go to parts of the world where economic or excuse me, ecological destruction is happening. And they apply, you know, this framework of rights of nature laws and issue judgments. They're obviously non-binding. There's no authority to this body, but it's interesting in, you know, raising awareness about um, this other way of seeing the world, right? That, that we can apply a different legal framework uh, if we want to. Yeah, I, there there have been examples of these kinds of, of citizens' tribunals in the past, and and I I think there was one which which uh, tried George Bush and Don Rumsfeld as war criminals. Um, it didn't it didn't get very far, right? Um, and certainly it wasn't recognized. Has anybody tried to do that in the United States? Do a tri for tribunal for the rights of nature? Yeah, I uh, I don't. Gosh, okay. I'd have to go look at the website. I don't I, I don't believe so, but I mean there was the Chevron Ecuador case that they did, which obviously involved an American company. Um and the rights of nature, there I I believe that Garn is just starting a hub here in the US. So uh -huh. they have regional hubs where people interested in the movement can gather. And they've started doing like monthly meetings here in the U.S. Um, and so it's other regions in the world are much more um, have taken off much more. Uh, the U.S. is just kind of getting started. Yeah. Are, are there any examples in, in Europe? And I know in Asia and in India, there have been cases, but in Europe. Yeah. Yes. So uh, Mar Menor, which is a. Um, saltwater lagoon it's it's a giant saltwater lagoon spain uh recognized in national legislation the rights of the lagoon to huh. uh, exist and persist it's been hit with a lot of like mass eutrophication events like loads of dead fish yeah. um and there are efforts in the uk and ireland and germany that i know of um and so these things are kind of on the cusp of breaking through you mentioned that um, you got sent to Ecuador for a month, and I saw there was a long article about about the Amazon. I I, I think it must describe your trip there. Um, is that right? Well, so that was a trip last year. So ah. I, I've I've gone to South America twice now in my two years of oh, journalism. Wow. Uh -huh. so I'm a very lucky lucky person. That's why I one of the reasons why I love Inside Climate News, um, that they allow me to do that. But I did do one story um, on one of those rights of nature tribunals that went to the Amazon in Brazil. So the Brazilian. Okay. And then uh, the story I did on Ecuador last year was not about the rights of right, nature, yeah. it was about oil pollution. Mm -hmm. The story I'm working on now, um, uh, I don't want to say too much, but, uh, you know, it's it's about... I call it the most important human rights 
court cases that no one in the United States has ever heard of. Mm -hmm. Um, And it says a lot about sort of who we are, I think, as, as humanity, I'll tease it that way, but um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, um, I'm very excited to publish it. Well, I I wanted to ask you, you know, that what, when you went to, to South America, what did you do there when you were going on these trips? Uh, Yeah. Well, so I, you know, in, in Brazil, um, I tagged along with the tribunal. So we stayed with local communities throughout most of the, of the trip. We're mm-hmm. hosted by local communities. And we were in the northern part of Brazil, so the state of Pará. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, went to see things in person, saw a lot of environmental destruction, um, listened to the experiences of local communities, so not just indigenous communities, Kilimbola communities, um, like Riverside communities, people who have lived there for a very long time um, and got a real education um, about the history of of what's happened in Brazil and and what is happening. Um, Seeing firsthand to the the militarization of the Amazon, um, there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of legal activity that that happens there. Um, so that was that was sort of the Brazil part. Um, and in Ecuador, uh, this last trip, I went into the forest for a little bit. Was hosted by uh, a community of recently contacted uh, indigenous people, oh, wow. and um, also spent time in, in Quito and the sort of Amazonian city of Coca as uh-huh. well um and so yeah it just depends I, I they sent me to argentina this this year as well um and did some reporting in an area called vaca muerta um i haven't published the story on that yet so i don't want to say too much but that is uh sort of the fracking at the center of south america uh-huh. it's just taking off and it's interesting because I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, where fracking has gone on here for a very long time. And um, it's interesting seeing it in the the initial stages in Argentina. And there's a whole lot of complexity to that. Um, Argentina is a really interesting country with a fascinating and, and complex history. So, um, yeah, it's a story to come on okay. that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well, we'll we'll come back. We'll promote those at the end of the at the end of the show. Um, so this tribunal is going went from community to community to take testimony, rather than having people come to the tribunal. Right? That's right. That's right. So, they they take invitations from communities all over the world. Uh-huh. Actually, from what I understand, they're quite overwhelmed. So many people want them to come. I can imagine. Um, which says a lot about access to justice, right? Um, how difficult it is for certain people to have access to justice. And the next best thing is a tribunal that has no, you know, power in the sense they can't order, you know, uh, remedies of some sort, but they can issue sort of moral judgments. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Did did I read about a case in Mexico that you That's wrote right. about? 
Yeah, I, I did a story just before they went, but the tribunal actually issued their verdict just days ago. Um, and it, it was uh, Lopez Obrador, um, AMLO, as he's you know called usually the president of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Big development project is to create, you know, a train trains that will go all throughout the Yucatan Peninsula, mm-hmm. so the Cancun area. And it is to bring tourists essentially from Cancun more inland. Um, and it is being built across all of these Mayan rooms uh, that we don't even know <laughs> really exist. So it's it's devastating some of that. And it's also going straight through communities that have existed there for a very long time. Um, no consultation, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, I didn't get to go on that trip, um, but it's worth checking out if you're interested. You can go to Garn's website and and look what they have to say. And it, I should note that I believe the tribunal always invites, um, you know, the the company or the government to come in and and give their side as well. But usually that is um, declined. So. Mm-hmm. You're not getting that argument um, often of, of whatever that other side's argument would be. Um, so I should just note that. Have you read the decision of the tribunal or the, the report of the tribunal? On not, the trans- the, not the Mayan one yet. No. no. Oh, okay. It, I, it's on my list to do. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned a couple of things that you're working on. What else might you be thinking about writing about? Yeah. I, well, so, I mean, I, my beat is kind of this intersection of the environment and law and, mm-hmm. and human rights, nature's rights. Um, yeah, yeah. One of the things I'm tracking uh, right now is there are three efforts to get what are called advisory opinions. Um, again, they're non-binding opinions, but um, they're being pursued from three international courts, one of which is the International Court of Justice. It's known as the oh, World's yeah, Court. Yeah. Right. And its decisions um, are used by national courts. So what what the ICJ says, uh, usually national courts follow and what these advisory opinions are about climate change and what are the responsibilities, the legal duties of governments um, for climate change, you know, extraterritorially, intergenerationally. and we haven't answered these questions because they're tough political questions. I mean, the the whole COP process um, under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. That's Conference of the Parties for those yes. of you who, who haven't been listening to sustainability now. Yes. 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 You know, it, it, it doesn't get at these questions. Um, it 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 sort of sidesteps that. And so what what the ICJ says, the other one is before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Mm -hmm. And the third one is before the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea. Um, And so that's something I'll be be following up on. I've written about it um, before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But anywhere there's an intersection of human rights and the environment, I'm always looking to cover those stories. Um, I like to take a ground's eye view as much as I can. So going to where things are happening and and putting a face or 
you know, context to these sort of what can be ambiguous ideas or, or terms. Hmm. Um, well, you know, last question is what can our listeners do if they're supporters of the rights of nature to push for local state and national laws? Yeah, uh, so there's a, a handful of organizations in the U.S. I assume most of your listeners are in the United States. Um, uh, you know, just from memory, I don't want to leave anyone out because there are a lot of good good places. And and I also want to say a caveat. I mean, I'm a journalist. I'm not an advocate, so I'm, I'm telling well, you the, these places because they're they're who are making the news. Um, Earth Law Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, um, CELDF, um, C-E-L-D-F, I believe is the acronym, yeah. and Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. And, and those are just a handful. But I'll also circle back to what I what I said sort of in the, the middle or the beginning. I mean, um, you know, elevating the voices of our First Nations um learning about their histories um that is a big part of of all of this and um it's fascinating you know uh it's 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 good to learn all of that and and um that's sort of like a first step i think to to get initiated into understanding this movement Mm -hmm. and how can our listeners sign up for inside climate news yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, you can go to insideclimatenews.org and um, we have uh, no pay- paywall, but you'll be prompted eventually to put your email in. And our newsletters are fabulous. Um, you know, please follow us. We're also on all of the socials. Um, so please follow us there. And, you know, thanks for reading us. Okay, well, Katie Sermer, thanks for being my guest on Sustainability Now. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to listen to previous shows, you can find them at ksquid.org slash sustainability now and Spotify, Google Podcasts and Pocket Casts, amongst other podcast sites. So thanks for listening. And thanks to all the staff and volunteers who make KSquid and KSquirt your community radio station and keep them going. And so until next every other Sunday, sustainability now. Climbs and not through currents and thriving seas.